So today's reading comes uh, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Hello again, New Hope. Once again, you are welcomed here in the name of Jesus. And uh, he welcomes us all to, into his presence now to not only sing to him and pray to him, but to hear from him through his word. And so that's what we're going to do now. Um, I'm going to ask you to open up to Exodus 20 if you, uh, if you have a Bible or a device that you can do that in. Um, and by the way, let me just once again uh, thank uh, Pastor Middleton, Dominique Middleton, for coming here uh, with their family to share with us about the work that they're doing. If you want to learn more about the work that God is doing through Acts Church in Yonkers, um, you can go to welcometoacts.com. And at welcometoacts.com, you can find out more about, how, about the work they're doing, how to support the work they're doing, and, uh, and how to better pray for them, too. So welcometoacts.com. So last week, we started our journey through the Ten Commandments. I realized that not all of us might necessarily be familiar with the Ten Commandments. I don't, I don't want to assume that we all know the Ten Commandments. I instead want to help us learn them and remember them. And what better way is there to remember something like a list of commandments than to use hand motions? Hand motions. If you've ever been to preschool or, or vacation Bible school somewhere, you know that hand motions are great. And so the, earlier this week, I was reminded of some hand motions that I learned a long time ago uh, for the Ten Commandments. When I was listening to a pastor over, as some of you may know, over in Elmhurst, Queens, named Richard Belodas, he, 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 he reminded me of some of these Wonderful hand motions to help us remember the Ten Commandments. And so I want to borrow some of them, uh, not all of them, because some of them that I learned were actually better than the ones he used. But I'm going to borrow some of them, and uh, I hope that we can use this to learn these commandments together. And, and next week, um, make sure you're ready for the test, all right, for the test next week. The first commandment tells us that you shall have no other God before me. That It's the first one, and it points up to the one God. There is one God. You will have no other gods before me, only one. The second commandment tells us not to make any carved images of that God. So no images of the one God. Do not make images. Do not bow down to those images. That's two. The third commandment tells us to not take the Lord's name in vain. That means we need to take these three fingers and put them over our mouth, and we need to be careful about the way we talk about God. Watch what you say about God and how you use his name. The fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. We can take these four fingers like a little pillow. We can rest our head on the Sabbath. We rest on the Sabbath. The fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and mother. Honor your parents. So we take those five fingers and we salute mom and dad. We salute them. And some of us, um, if you're, if, when you were little, maybe, maybe you knew that, that if you didn't honor mom and dad, you might get this, that, oh, so honor Honor your mom and dad. The sixth commandment tells us not to murder. Not to murder. And this, this, this is like a knife. We don't, oh, no murder. No murdering. The seventh commandment tells us not to commit adultery. It reminds us that the, the marriage bed is for a husband and wife. And so we honor, we honor that marriage bed. 
between the husband and the wife. The eighth commandment. The eighth commandment tells us not to steal. So put your hands up. This is a hold up. No, none of that, right? We don't <laughs> hold anyone up. No stealing. No stealing. The ninth commandment tells us, the ninth commandment tells us to, to not lie. It says do not bear false witness. Do not lie. So if, if, if you've really got four, don't say you have five. And if you have five, don't say you have four. Don't lie. Don't lie. The tenth commandment, this is an easy one. It tells us not to go through life coveting. Don't go through life grasping and wanting what everyone else has, just wanting to take and take and take. So those are the Ten Commandments. The test is coming soon. We can clap when we all pass the test, all right? So last week, you know, I wish the kids were still here before they went to Sunday school. Maybe they could have been useful for them. But last week we saw that God never intended these Ten Commandments to to limit our freedom, though we might think of commandments as limiting and suffocating The commandments of God were meant to lead us into freedom, more freedom, not less. And and if we're going to realize that and really grasp it, we need to see that these Ten Commandments, they do many things for us. They they do several things simultaneously. The Ten Commandments are like a multi-use device, a multi-use device. You know what that is, right? If you have a phone like this, iPhone, you have a multi-use device that you keep in your pocket. You don't need to carry uh, a phone and a camera and a calculator and a flashlight and an and a entertainment delivery system. You've got it all right here. Too many functions, frankly. Well, the Ten Commandments do many things at once, too, and we saw this last week. These commandments, they are for us revelation, confrontation, instruction, and promise. And I've borrowed that framework from Pastor Ray Ortland. if you want to look it up online. But what this means to us is that the The Ten Commandments, first of all, they reveal God to us. They reveal the character of God, but they also confront us with our own fallen character. They confront us with our sin, but they also instruct us. They teach us how to live, how to live well in the way that God designed us to live. And lastly, built into each command is a promise. Each one points to the promise of the gospel. So let's see how how the first commandment today, that's what we're doing today. We're looking at the first, and over the next nine weeks we'll finish these out. How does the first commandment do each of these things? Let's read again this passage that, that Andrew read to us from Exodus 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall, and here's the command, You shall have no other gods before me. Only one God, no other gods. Just to set some context, God had just rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, where they had been enslaved for 400 years. But God worked through Moses, this this very unlikely leader, to, to bring them out of slavery into freedom. And then God brought them to a place called Mount Sinai. And he told Moses to go up that mountain, but to keep the people away, to step back from the mountain. And here's what Moses encountered when he went up on that mountain. He encountered fire and smoke and and lightning shooting from a cloud and and crashing thunder and trumpet blasts from heaven. It was a multi-sensory, overwhelming experience of the presence of God. The earth itself was shaking. And there in the place, 
in that place. God delivered these Ten Commandments to Moses to, to deliver to the people in order to show the people how to live, how to live now that they were finally free at last. After 400 years, they had to relearn how to live as God's people, as free people. And this first commandment, well, it sets the foundation for all the others. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. So the first question we have to ask is, what does this reveal to us about the character of God? And, and I don't know about you, when I first read that, the first word that comes to mind to me about God is that he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And, and that might be uncomfortable for us to talk about because, well, jealous sounds like a, kind of a negative character trait, doesn't it? We tend to think of jealousy as negative. It, it's, it's a relational red flag, right? This person's too jealous. Because for us, jealousy usually has to do with, has to do with insecurity, uh, has to do with ego. Jealousy has to do with, 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 with hurt pride. And the, the Bible actually speaks against that kind of jealousy in many different places. But what God is showing us here about himself is not that kind of jealousy. It's, it's another kind altogether. He is not displaying insecurity. Far from it. What God is showing us here is that he deserves and he expects faithfulness. He expects and he deserves faithfulness from his people. Perhaps the best way for, understand, for us to understand this kind of jealousy is to, is to think about it within the context of marriage. Right? Imagine a, a, a husband telling his wife, I, I love you, but um, I really want to split my time between you and this other woman, this other family. I love you, but I feel like I, I, need, to, I need to share that love with another family. If, if she were to say n- no, never, would we accuse her of being too jealous? Imagine the wife saying, no, you cannot cheat on me. I will not allow it. And the husband responds, but, but why do you even care? I mean, you're being, you're being moralistic. You're being self-centered. You're restricting my freedom. You see, to understand the jealousy of God, we have to see it within the context of a covenant, a promise. God demands exclusive fidelity because he is a faithful God. Faithful to his people when he requires of us exclusive fidelity. Let's press into that a little bit more. The, when, when God says there, there, sh- there should be no other gods before me, he's probably, or at least, or at least primarily, referring to some of those Egyptian gods, or perhaps at least what would have come to mind for those newly freed Israelites would have been all the Egyptian gods that they knew about while they were in Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, gods like Osiris and Isis and Kanshu and Amut. I don't know a lot about Egyptian gods, but I, I watched that, that Marvel show, uh, Moon Knight, if you happen to watch that. It teaches you a lot about Egyptian gods, so that, that's, that's my source. <laughs> but later, later, the, the Israelites would, would, would start to adopt the, the, the gods of other cultures as well as they spent time as slaves in other places. So they began to worship gods like Baal and Asherah. And by the way, when they started worshiping these other gods, it's not like they stopped 
worshiping the Lord altogether, they, they just added some gods into the mix, right? Perhaps like, like insurance, as if, as, if, as if they were saying, we're going to pray to the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We'll pray to the Lord who rescued us from slavery in Egypt, but, but it wouldn't hurt to pray to some of these other gods too, would it? I mean, we really, we really need these crops to come in this year. It wouldn't hurt if we prayed to the Egyptian god of harvest. Or, or we need to win this war. Yes, we will ask the Lord to give us victory, but it wouldn't hurt to pray to these other gods of war. It's kind of like they were hedging their bets, in a sense. And one of the reasons that the Lord declares this law and says, I will have no other gods... It's because he knows that all these other gods are counterfeit. They're little g gods. They're, they're quote-unquote gods, and he is the capital G, I am. He knows that these other gods that his people were prone to worship, were they were either just cultural constructs, like, like figments of the imagination. That's kind of a best-case scenario, because worst-case scenario, they were actually demons that were being worshipped by these cultures. But either way, God says it is not safe to worship these little g-gods, these counterfeit gods. God knows the Lord knew where these gods would lead his people. And so in love, it's in love, not out of insecurity or envy, that God says, do not have any other gods before me. Yes, he is jealous for his glory, and he is also jealous for the good of his people whom he loves. And by the way, when he says there shall be no other gods before me, that before me Before doesn't just mean like ahead of me. Like you can have other gods, but none of them can be above me. I need to be the number one God in your life. No, he's saying I should be the only God in your life. The before there doesn't mean ahead of. Before here means in my presence. Like to stand before the king. In the presence of the king. He says I will have no other gods in my presence. And God is everywhere. So that means there's no no room for any gods anywhere in our life other than him. He's not saying put God first. I know we use that colloquialism sometimes, right? Keep God first. I get it. I understand where that's coming from. God's not saying keep me first. He's saying I don't want you to worship anyone or anything but me. These other gods from these other cultures, they were cool with sharing allegiance, right? But not God. He's different. God is holy. We sang about this holiness. He's different. He says, I want exclusive allegiance. And the Lord had proven his trustworthiness. So he warns his people. Not for his sake. He warns them for their sake. He warns us for our sake. In love. He calls us to obey the first commandment. And it's not so that he will love us more. He's not saying, if you obey this commandment, I will love you more. No, he's saying, obey this commandment because I have loved you. And my love is steadfast and it's unchanging This is why you should obey. And in fact, obeying this commandment will not cause him to love us more, but it sure will cause us to love him more. So this is what something of what that first commandment reveals to us about the character of God. What does it show us about ourselves? How does this commandment confront us with our own character? Well, for one... This commandment tells us that we are the kind of people who need to be told not to worship other gods. That we need, we need to see ourselves in these 
Israelites. Remember, God had just brought them out of slavery. They had seen with their own eyes the plagues that God had brought to descend upon the people of Egypt. They saw the mighty plagues of God. They saw the Red Sea open up before them so that they could walk across on dry water, on dry ground. They had just seen Mount Sinai lit up. And in spite of all that, they would soon be looking for help from other little G-gods. Very soon. Like by the time Moses made it down the mountain. Now, is that all that different from us? Is it all that different from us? I wonder, because we may not worship Osiris or, or Baal or Asherah, but are we not prone to worship things and people, the little g-gods of our culture? Are we not prone to serve them and trust them and even live for them? A few weeks ago, Joe encouraged us to, to look back over 2022 and try to remember the ways that the Lord had been faithful, the ways that the Lord had, had answered prayer and, and provided for us. And, and maybe you did that over the, that week. Maybe, maybe I tried to do that myself. But, but even as you remembered God's faithfulness in the previous year, did that completely stop you from doubting that he will provide in the future? Or do you still find yourself sometimes wondering, will he really provide? Will he really defend me and my cause? Will he really, really take care of me? Did you still find yourself, perhaps even during that same week, trusting in money, trusting in self, trusting in any number of other things? The first commandment confronts us with this sad reality. We are prone to have other gods before him. Maybe not always ahead of him. Like we wouldn't say those things are more important than God. We just like to keep them alongside God as insurance, just in case, right? Like, like I'll trust you, Lord, but I'm also going to cling to this other source of safety in case you don't show up. Um, maybe I'll keep clinging to this unhealthy relationship that brings me security, even though I know it's unhealthy and unwise, and I know you don't want this in my life, Lord, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you, but I'm going to cling to this relationship. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you, but I'm going to keep clinging to this money and try to amass more of it, or I'm going to cling to this addiction because this addiction brings me comfort, even though I know it's, it's also destroying me. What is that but, but serving other gods, having other gods? Second Kings 17 the Lord there says this about his people. Look at, look at this, verse 33. He says, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. They feared the Lord. They served other gods. Oh, these words pierced me. I don't know about you, but these words pierced me because I believe I do fear the Lord. And yet I must admit, maybe some of you, admit, maybe someone here would admit with me. Fear the Lord, and I find myself serving other gods, my own gods. You see, God's people here in 2 Kings, they, they had become polytheists. You know, polytheists, right? They believe in and worship many gods. Just like the cultures that they had become more familiar with, they became polytheists. I wonder if you can relate to that. 
This is why we need to hear, you shall have no other gods before me. It's why Jesus, in Matthew 6, 24, he tells us, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus starts out saying you can't serve two masters, and he, he applies it specifically to the issue of money, but it really relates to other things, not just money. It could be any possessions. It could be relationships. It could be any form of little g gods. It could go for anything. And he says you can't have two gods. You can't even try to have two gods and just put, and just put the Lord first. <laughs> he says, no, that won't work. He says you can only truly serve one. So, for example, if it comes to money, for instance, you can either serve God and use the money that he gives you to do his will, or you can serve money and use God to get more of it. (laughs) So either serve God and use money to do his will, or you can serve money and use God to try to amass more. You're going to serve one as God, and you're going to use the other. That's the point. The question is, which one will it be? Which one will I serve, and which one will I use? The same goes for our jobs, our possessions. It can go for the influence that God's given us. The first commandment confronts us with with our polytheism. Um, America has many gods, doesn't it? New York has plenty of gods. Westchester County has lots of gods. You, you don't have to go to another continent to encounter polytheistic cultures. We live in a polytheistic culture. We'll, we will worship status. We will worship comfort. We will worship possessions, name it, whatever it is. And if one of them is not satisfying us because they will always disappoint, what do we do? We move on to the next one and, and the next one. And, 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 and maybe, maybe we'll just try to keep God first. Keep God first. But God's not having that. He is not having it because he knows that our trust in other gods just reveals how little we trust him. Psalm 14.1 tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You, you know that's not necessarily talking about the atheist here. I think I often read this thinking, oh, this is talking about the foolishness of atheism. No, it's not, not necessarily It's not necessarily just the person who says, I will not believe in God unless you provide me with empirical evidence uh, that proves his his existence. No, no, no. This Psalm 14.1 may very well be talking about a religious person who goes to church, a church person. Because you see, he says in in his heart there is no God. So this person may very well be religious. They might say with their mouth, praise the Lord. (laughs) They may sing the name of Jesus. But practically speaking, their trust is elsewhere because in their heart they're saying, I I can't trust him. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if he's real. And God is saying, this is foolish thinking. This is foolish thinking. The first commandment confronts us with the foolishness of our unbelief, even when it's masked by religiosity and the external facade of faithfulness. This commandment reveals to us that God is holy He's trustworthy and he's faithful. 
Some of you may remember this other dramatic scene in the scriptures where God's people are confronted with their tendency to worship many gods. The, the prophet Elijah is at the center. Well, really, God's at the center of that narrative, but prophet Elijah plays a big role. The prophet Elijah once confronted the king of Israel, a king named Ahab, for having abandoned the commandments of God and for for leading the people of Israel to worship counterfeit gods like Baal and and his girlfriend Asherah. And, And Elijah told the king, gather all the people of Israel along with all the false prophets of Baal and Asherah And so the king did it, and they gathered all these people at a mountain named Carmel. And Elijah confronted them all in the name of the Lord. And he said these words to those people in 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And it says, the people did not answer him a word. There was silence. Now, I wonder, I wonder what kind of silence it was. Was it, was it guilty silence? Was it reflective silence? Was it worshipful silence? I, I, don't, I don't know. But even in here now, there's a, there's a measure of silence. And, and I wonder if some of us perhaps are limping between these two opinions, who is the Lord? Who will I serve? Who will I follow? Perhaps the Lord is asking us the same question. How long will you limp between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if you are God, if you are, keep following your heart. Keep following your heart. Do your thing. Do you. If the, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if the opinions of others are God, then keep following them. If the Lord is God, then serve him. But if money and career success and status are God, then keep chasing them. Keep chasing them. But, but it's he's saying stop limping between opinions. And, and, and don't lie to yourself about where your true allegiances are. This is a confronting commandment. Confronts us with our character and our tendencies, our ambivalence about who to worship and who to follow and who to serve. Thanks be to God that this command doesn't just confront us. It instructs us. And so we need to ask, how does this commandment instruct us? Well, for one thing, it tells us that we were made to know and serve God and that nothing else will do. It teaches us that the way towards freedom is to live free of idols, free of little g gods. It teaches us that if if money is your God, then you're always going to be a slave. You're always going to be driven by your slave master money to make more money. If the opinions of others are your God, then you will always be their slave, driven to be liked, driven to be accepted and spoken well of. 
The same goes for our relationships and go for career success and go for anything in this world that we take and we put in the place of God. You weren't made to live for any of them. You were made to live for the Lord. And if that's true, then wouldn't you expect that real freedom and satisfaction is going to come by serving him? He tells us, he tells us that he loves you. He says he loves you and he approves of you fully in Jesus Christ. He says you don't have to maintain his affection. You don't have to earn it, first of all, and you certainly don't need to work to keep it. He is, this God is unconditionally committed to your good and to you forever in Christ. And then on top of that, we know that he designed you. So he knows better than you do what will give you lasting satisfaction. He knows what will bring you real well-being, real shalom, peace in your life. Only he knows. His command instructs us to pursue freedom by submitting our lives to the true and living God. And lastly, we've got to ask, what promise does this first commandment point us to? What promise does it point us to? Remember, the law was never given to be a way of salvation. God never said, keep these laws and I will save you. No. He said, I saved you. Now keep these laws and enjoy the freedom that, that I ransomed you for. Right? So we saw it in Exodus. He, he, he saved his people from Egypt through Moses. And now he has saved his people from sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we read this command, we need to be reminded that the promise of ultimate rescue, we need, to, we need to realize that there is a promise embedded here, a promise of ultimate rescue for all who trust in Jesus. You know, he's the only man who ever truly kept this commandment. Jesus is the only man who never limped between two opinions ever on who to serve. He never served any other gods. He loved his father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. And yet, and yet he died as a sinner. He died like a, like a polytheistic idolater. In the place of polytheists and idol worshipers. He died in their place. And he did it to rescue us from the consequences of, of of us chasing all those little G gods. And he died to give, us, to give us eternal life. So that's the promise that this commandment points to. It's the promise of salvation and eternal life in Jesus, the one who fulfills this law. And, and there's another promise, and here's the last promise. It's for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And, and perhaps your trusting in Jesus is imperfect, Perhaps your trust in Jesus is not always consistent. Perhaps you would say, my trust in Jesus is not those things, but it is sincere. It is real. And it's deepening. Well, there's a promise for you, believer. One day you will love the Lord exclusively. With all your heart. With all your soul and mind and strength. You see, this promise is for every recovering idolater, every recovering polytheist. 
remember, remember, the Ten Commandments aren't for perfect people. Perfect people don't need commandments. These commandments are for lawbreakers. Yes, they, they reveal God's holiness. They confront us with our own failures and sin. But they also remind us that our law-breaking is forgiven in Jesus, who fulfilled the law and died in our place. And, and he, our Savior, guarantees that we are being transformed as we learn to trust the true God more. So, so, this, so that this command, I love, to, I love the way this works. I mean, this, this command, you shall have no other gods before me, actually becomes a promise. Like, you shall have no other gods before me. Like, 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 on the one hand, you should not have any gods before me, but it becomes the promise, you will not have any gods before me. You won't. As I continue to transform you, and I give you the power of my spirit to make you into a monotheistic worshiper who worships the one true and living God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's hard for us sometimes to know if we are serving other gods. And, and you know, I might think sometimes, I've thought this way, maybe you have, like, I'm really interested in this thing, I'm spending a lot of time with this thing. Does, does that mean that I'm, I'm worshiping it? Like, if I'm interested in something, does it mean that it's, it's replacing the Lord in my life? Or if I'm working really hard because i got a goal, i got a job that I love and it's a gift from God and I'm working hard at it, does that mean that my job is replacing God in my life? Not necessarily, right? Being committed to something doesn't necessarily mean that you're worshiping that thing. And I don't want to guilt people unnecessarily for, 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 for doing the things God has called them to do or even for enjoying the good things that God's given you. So we need discernment to know what is me legitimately enjoying and pursuing the things that God has given me to do, where does it become worship of false gods? It's hard to discern, but I, I'm going to give you a couple of questions, and we'll end with these questions. And these questions are aimed to help us discern for ourselves. The first one is this. What would someone very close to you say that you worship? Think about the people who know you well, and hopefully there are people in your life that know you real well. What would they say you worship? Or let's put it differently. What would they say you live for? You live for. Based on how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you, uh, where your goals are focused, your aims in life, what would they say you worship and live for? You can try to answer that honestly on your own, or you can go and ask the people who know you well. Maybe they'll answer. Maybe you can trade answers. Here's another question, the second one. What do you look to to save you? What do you look to to save you? And let me explain what I mean, because I'm not asking, what do you look to to save your soul from sin and hell? A lot of us in this room might say, you know, that I, I, I trust, so many of us would say, my trust is in Jesus. I'm looking to Jesus to save my soul. I'm, but I'm, I'm talking about like a, a more limited sense of salvation. What, what I mean is, when, when, like for instance, when you're anxious, what do you look to to make you feel better, to save you from those negative feelings? When you're in trouble, what do you reach for because you believe it will fix things? Or, or when you feel ashamed and worthless, 
what do you look to, to to make you feel like all is okay? We can use so many things to do all these things. I mean, money is a big one for some of us, or, or sex, affirmation, alcohol, pornography. And all of it, all of it, frankly, for a moment can save you. All of it for a moment can save you from that, that, that feeling of, of desperation or that feeling of loneliness or that feeling of insignificance. But it will only save you for a moment, won't it? Because it's a counterfeit God. It provides counterfeit salvation, a fleeting sense of well-being, and then it disappears. God is saying you don't need to look anywhere else for salvation anywhere else. And I'm not saying, let me make sure you, I'm, I'm clear on this, I'm not saying that, that, that nothing can be helpful to you in moments of anxiety or loneliness or in moments of desperation or, or physical pain. I'm not saying that things can't help, like, like having money can help you in some of those areas and, and affirmation is good and can help you and, and medication is good and can help you and therapy is good and can help you. All those things are good. What I'm saying is that the one with power to truly save you And the one who has the power to even use those things to bring healing and help is God and God alone. He says, we don't need to look for the salvation that I can give anywhere else. And the last question is this. And this one might sound kind of, uh, this one might sound kind of petty or kind of legalistic. I hope, I hope I can get it across well, um, how do you start your day? How do you start your day? Some of us start this way. The earlier I get to work, the better. <laughs> if, if I immediately start working, as soon as I wake up, start responding to emails, responding to clients, start getting work done, I will feel more secure and I'll feel better about my life. <laughs> or some of us, maybe we start this way. Um, let me grab my device and... and let me check to see who texted me and whether he responded or she responded. Because, because when, when I see those responses, uh, maybe I'll feel a little bit more at ease. <laughs> It'll release some of those endorphins and, I, and I'll feel a little bit better, a little bit more less anxious about my day. Or maybe for some of us, it's just like, let me grab my device. I just want to check the scores, see who won last night, uh, check the news. Because, because the... It'll distract me from some of the challenges that await me today. So before I get to work, I need to just look at some of this stuff that'll distract me from all that. There are many different ways that we can start our days. The Bible points us to a better way to begin. A better way to begin our days is to say, I want to hear from my God. I want to hear his words for me. I I need him to remind me of how he's rescued me. I need my God to remind me of what he's done for me. I need him to remind me that I'm his. You see, starting our days with all those other stuff, what we're doing is we're saying, I I need those other things right now. (laughs) I need those things right now. I need those to be the first thing. And, And priorities matter. You know, they really do. I'm convinced that starting in the presence of God trains your heart every day. It trains your mind to want him and trust him more. 
I believe that'll hold up. I believe it's true. That's why in our, our home, I've, I've struggled. This is hard, but I've struggled to try to convince everyone of the, 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 the importance of, of something we call BBD. Do you know BBD? I think I've mentioned this before. It's not Belle Biv DeVoe for you old generation Xers. BBD means a Bible before device. <laughs> Bible before device. And again, that may sound petty to you. It may sound legalistic. I'll take that. But I believe that if we begin our days being reminded of our great God and who he says we are and who he says he is, it will, over time, not magically in a, in a week, but over time, it will transform us into people who will more and more increasingly worship only him. The first commandment is a call to trust God as God. The rest of the commandments aren't going to matter unless we believe that. The rest of the commandments don't matter if he's not really the one true God. But if he is the one true God, then he cannot just be another voice in our lives. He, he demands exclusive fidelity. He demands obedience. And he's jealous, God. Jealous for his glory, yes, but he's also jealous for our good. He's jealous for our well-being. He wants to rescue you from, from wasting your life chasing counterfeits. And he promises you freedom from all of that if you will trust him. And trust his gospel. Let's pray to this God. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we come in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you will fulfill your promises pointed to, embedded in this command. We confess our little g, God-chasing tendencies. We confess that we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. So we ask that you would take us, draw us to yourself, and train us by your grace, Lord. Train us to worship, serve, and live for you alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.